Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of Bushido. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today, our topic is a very cool one. I've been looking forward to this. We're talking about samurai. Everybody loves samurai. They're awesome. Uh, the word samurai means those who serve, which will make a lot of sense as we get further into the episode. But in Japan, that word samurai isn't really used all that often. Usually they're referred to as bushi, which means warrior. And Paul in the intro mentioned bushido. So bushi means warrior. Bushido is the way of the warrior. That's kind of the codes of honor that samurai were supposed to live by. So you might have a mental image of what a samurai looks like, hopefully, because they look awesome. They got real elaborate armor, these big, very threatening looking helmets. They're carrying some of the coolest swords in world military history. They're just cool dudes. Yeah, definitely. I think everybody has an idea of what a samurai looks like. Yeah, you might imagine them running around on horses or on foot, maybe slicing people up with their swords. And that did happen. Samurai were fierce warriors, but they were also a lot more than that. They were hereditary military nobility. They're not just soldiers. They are high-class citizens with a lot of power. Yeah, they had a lot of governmental responsibility. Yeah. Filled most functions of state. Yeah. So most samurai served a daimyo, which is a feudal lord. And they would hire these samurai to guard their lands, and they would pay them in land or food. So samurai were relatively rich. They were doing a lot better than like the farmers and the peasants, the commoners, the way that most people were living. Yeah, they're just getting paid in sacks of rice. They're like, nice. Mm-hmm. This is a good life. Yeah, and this, this whole setup was kind of how it went for almost a thousand years between the 12th and 19th centuries. So... In the next section, we're going to go into a lot more depth on that, talk about their history. Then we're going to talk about their awesome gear, their swords and their armor. We're going to talk about samurai culture and what it might have been like to be a samurai back in the day. So buckle up. Here we go. (laughs) History. Uh, All right. What? what? (laughs) Let's get in the way back machine. All right. Let's go way back. Start it up. You drive this time. I'm sick of driving. I just want to sit in the back, let you chauffeur me around in the Wayback Machine. All right. Vroom, vroom. We're here in the Heian period. All right. Man, things look quite different. So in this period, around the late 8th to early 9th centuries, the word samurai referred to the armed supporters of wealthy landowners. So the emperor and other nobility would hire these warrior nobles, the samurai. But over time, alliances started to form between these samurai. And you might have heard of these old clans of Japan. This is where those clans started to grow in military and economic power and eventually got to the point where samurai dominated the government. Yeah, and I think we should say that this was the time of a Japanese empire. The samurai were being hired to subdue natives and expand the empire and claim new lands. Mm -hmm. But, as all good empires go, they eventually turned inward. How so? The two most powerful of the land-owning clans, the Minamoto and the Taira, eventually challenged the central government 
and battled each other for supremacy of the entire country. And uh, the Minamoto won and uh, set up a new military government in 1192 to be led by a shogun. And that continued for quite a while, although a few different dynasties came and went. Yeah, so this this was the first shogunate. Did you say that? I didn't, Okay, but it was the first, yes. Yeah, so a shogunate is a military dictatorship, and this was the very first one known as the Kamakura shogunate. So the emperor was still around, but he was a figurehead now. Yeah, all the real political power was shifted to the samurai. And again, these samurai were not just warrior thugs. Like, they weren't just these big scary guys with swords. They were also symbols of the ideal warrior and citizen. People looked up to them, or they were supposed to set an example for everyone else. Yeah, after this, samurai ruled Japan for the next 700 years. Mm Mm-hmm. And there became a hierarchy where the samurai, the warrior class, would serve a daimyo, those feudal landowners, and then the daimyo were loyal to a shogun, the ruler. So this whole system gave the shogun power over the emperor because of all the military power at his disposal. So at the end of the 13th century, there were two Mongol invasions into Japan. And these were serious invasions, like 100,000 warrior invasions. Well, the first one was 40,000 Mongols and 900 ships versus 10,000 samurai. So the samurai were outnumbered four to one, but the samurai won. How did they do that? God. (laughs) That's one explanation. (laughs) That was their explanation, but there were a bunch of thunderstorms that caused some trouble for those ships, so the Mongols retreated. Not long after that, there was the second invasion with 140,000 Mongols and 5,000 ships versus 40,000 samurai. So they're still outnumbered almost four to one. But again, the samurai won, this time because of a typhoon. But of course, the Japanese saw this as kami no kaze, which is the wind of the gods, which you might recognize from kamikaze, kamikaze pilots in World War II. Yeah. But yeah, Japan, they already believed that their lands were divine. Like all these old Shinto tales said that the gods blessed Japan from the beginning of time, basically. So they yeah. took this as confirmation, like, yes, you know, our lands are divine and we are under supernatural protection. Like they're looking out for us. Yeah, a lot of Shinto is worshiping the land itself. As many Shinto shrines are centered around a mountain or a rock. Yeah, the kami, the gods are like imbued in everything in around the land. You. Yeah, so yeah. the gods live in the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I thought that was just an interesting piece of. Kind of the zeitgeist, the, the, the ideas that they had about their country. Oh, being special. Yeah. 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 I have definitely looked into those invasions a lot because I love history and stuff like that. I know you do. And uh, the Mongols didn't have the best boats, mm. especially back then. It was like hard to make a good beachhead landing. Yeah. They didn't have like long boats like the Vikings did where they could just shoot up onto the beach and 30 guys pile out. And they got unlucky. Well, that dude, typhoon was just, yeah. it was just unlucky. I was going to say, I don't think it matters how good your ships are. If there's a typhoon, you're going to have a hard time, you know? Yeah, they weren't the most experienced sailors, so they didn't exactly know how to handle it super well. Yeah. Around this period, this is also where we start to see that technique of folded steel for swords. And we're not going to go into a lot of depth here because we talked a lot about that back in our swords episode. 
episode 23. So you can go back and check that out if you're interested in the swords. Yeah, but the Mongol invasions definitely led to like some sort of an arms race almost, where there was a big leap in like military technology just because they had to. All right, so the next period is a period we've talked a lot about before, the Sengoku period, the Warring States period. This is from the 15th to 16th centuries. Yeah, Japan splintered into dozens of independent states, constantly at war with one another. Yeah, a lot of fighting. Consequently, warriors were in high demand. Yeah, and because of that, there was much more social mobility in this period, and samurai culture loosened a lot because other warriors became known as samurai as well. So like, instead of having just this high-class nobility samurai class, now you have, for example, the Ashigaru, which were foot soldiers. And they might have started out just as farmers or peasants, like pretty much as low class as you can get. They were not nobles. But if they learned to fight and they joined in these battles, they would be fighting alongside samurai. They would start to learn to use their weapons. And eventually they became known as the lowest class of the samurai. So still lower class than the original noble samurai, but now they were included in that under that label. Yeah, there was so much fighting in some areas during this time that peasants just became soldiers. You just got drafted to the army year after year after year for another war, mm-hmm. and eventually you were just really good at it. <laughs> yeah, you learn by doing, training in the field. Yep. The ones that survived became pretty good You spend your whole life out at war, you become a warrior. Yeah. And this is also the period when castles were being built all over the place because all these different factions wanted to defend their land. And as we talked about in our castles episode, the samurai would live right around the castle to defend it. Yeah, the highest ranking samurai living the closest to the castle. Right. And all the other samurai nearby. Yep. This was also the era where ninjas were most active. Yeah. Uh, Warriors specialized in uh, unconventional warfare is one way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that, uh, well, I don't want to get too into ninjas because this is a samurai episode. Right. Yeah, ninjas could also be peasants and farmers that just learned to use like these guerrilla tactics. Also to frame this time period... If you were watching like one of the famous Kurosawa samurai movies, this is the period that those were set in. Yeah. Near the end of the Sengoku period, in the 1540s, guns were introduced to Japan. I guess that's not super close to the end of the period, right? Somewhat close to the end of the period. We're getting there. Yeah, so they were introduced, and then by the end of the Sengoku period, you had hundreds of thousands of guns in Japan, and there were huge armies of up to over 100,000 people fighting. Yeah. Like some serious battles. Yeah. But soon, peace came to Japan because the country was united under the Tokugawa shogunate. So the path for the formation of the Tokugawa shogunate was paved by these three dudes. You got Oda Nobunaga, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, and Tokugawa Ieyasu. And once the shogunate was in power... The authorized samurai families were those who followed those three guys. So during the Warring States period, you know, anybody could be a samurai. But once they took power, it's like, okay, only the guys following us are officially samurai. And actually, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, one of those three guys, he had started out as an Ashigaru, 
those foot soldiers that I mentioned that came from, you know, the very lowest classes of society. Mm -hmm. So he worked his way up all the way from peasantry, basically, to become the master of Japan. But when he got there, he wanted to make sure that no one else could do what he did. No one else could threaten his power that way. So he reestablished the samurai as a permanent hereditary class and made it so that only they could carry weapons so that they could prevent peasant revolts. So the only people that could be samurai were people that he said were samurai, and then he sent people out to confiscate everybody else's swords. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way to keep power. Yeah. Especially after 200 years of constant civil war and someone finally comes out on top, it's like, no, I'm taking all your weapons and we're just going to be at peace for a while. So during this time when the shogunate was forming, there were a lot of big battles, of course, a lot of revolts. And the samurai that were defeated during this regime change were either killed, turned into ronin, which we will talk about a little bit more later, or they just became civilians. They were absorbed by the you know, the civilian class. Yeah, and uh, the Tokugawa shogunate survived in relative peace, pretty much in total peace, for about 250 years. Yeah, so the samurai didn't have a ton to do, fighting-wise anyway. Yeah, so as a result, the importance of martial skills started to slowly decline, and many samurai became bureaucrats, teachers, artists, administrators. Yeah, they were the upper class running the government. Yeah. Yeah, so the daisho, the two swords that the samurai normally carried, it was more of a power symbol at this point than actual functional used tools. Right. But in this period, they still had the right to cut down any commoner who did not show proper respect. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) It's not totally clear how common that was, though. We don't know how often... Samurai actually exercised that right. Yeah, there don't seem to be any records, unfortunately, if that actually happened or not. Yeah. And so now that the samurai class was once again these high-class nobles, they were scholars, very high-class educated people, and they were seen as role models for the other social classes. Kind of like before the Warring States period. Yeah. And then in the 1870s, during the Meiji Restoration, The samurai class, which at that point was about 5% of the population, was abolished. They were not samurai anymore. So their rights to wear swords and execute commoners were abolished. And the former samurai were gradually assimilated into the professional military and business classes. Yeah, a huge percentage of Japanese businessmen apparently traced their lineage back to samurai. Yeah. The upper class kind of stays the upper class, <laughs> even Funny if you take away works. their swords. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're the guys with power. It'd probably cause a lot of trouble if you tried to just take that away from them without giving them anything, you know? Right. Right. Exactly. So there's some samurai history for you. There's a lot more cool stuff to talk about, like their armor. Yeah. What would a fully equipped samurai look like? They would look super badass (laughs) because they had really awesome armor. So the first types of samurai armor were known as yoroi, which is a type of armor called lamellar armor. And other parts of the world also had similar uh, types of armor. Lamellar armor is any armor made of little rectangular plates. In Japan, they were made of iron or leather and then they were coated in lacquer to protect them from water. 
and then they would be bound together in rows with silk or leather laces. So you got kind of a, it's almost like scale armor. Well, they're not overlapping. They're just like these little rectangles all tied together. Yeah, scale's a good way to put it. It's it's like, it's yeah. almost like a scale Scales armor. overlap and, I don't know, it's a little different, but you can get an idea of it. And uh, a full set of this armor could weigh over 60 pounds. I feel like that would weigh you down quite a bit, trying to swing swords around and stuff. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So eventually, the lamellar armor was replaced with plate armor. And this was mainly because of the introduction of guns. Yeah. Bullets could get in between or through those little leather or metal plates. So they would start to, the plate armor is made of like big sheets of metal that are covering big parts of your body. No bullets getting through that, hopefully. Right, right. They also had some pretty cool helmets known as kabuto. And these were decorated with all sorts of stuff. They look really cool. This is a big part of the really uh, intimidating look that samurai had. So these helmets are going to have symbols of their clan. And they're going to show who the samurai has allegiance to. And there are a lot of little pieces. You got the date mono, which is a big crest on the front, like right on your forehead. And it could be really big. And this would serve to intimidate and or identify your allegiance. So you'd have all sorts of things. You could have crests that look like different animals or make you look like a different animal. You could have ones representing mythical entities, or you could even have horns. Yeah, they would use water buffalo horns they'd put on the top of their helmet. So it looked like they had horns. That's awesome. Quite intimidating. So cool. And then on the back of the helmet, there's a piece called the shikoro, which would hang down from the back of the helmet over your neck, like it's a big curved thing to protect your neck. And then on the front, you got pieces called fukigaeshi, which are these little pieces. I never noticed these before until I started looking into it. But it's like on, on both temples, you have these little metal pieces that curve up. Have you seen those, Paul? Yeah, I have. You know what those are for? No, I don't. Apparently, they're also to protect the neck area. So if somebody's swinging a sword down at you, those are supposed to like catch the blade, make sure it doesn't get down to your neck. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought they just looked cool. They do look cool. And, <laughs> and on the front of them, a lot of times, you'll see a little crest there to a commune that shows you know, your allegiance, your family, okay, clan. And they'd also wear face masks too. What do those look like? Awesome. Just like everything else. So these face masks could be made of iron or leather or a combination. And they were made to look intimidating. They would make you look like a monster, a demon. And uh, sometimes they even had these giant mustaches. Did you see those? No, I didn't see a mustache. <laughs> it's so cool. They would use real hair. You got this metal mask and then this hair, a real mustache coming out of it. I wonder if they actually fooled anyone into thinking that was their real face, you know? <laughs> I'm actually a demon. Uh, and some of these masks stopped right below the eyes, but some of them actually covered the entire face and would just have eye holes, which apparently made it hard to see, as you can imagine. Yeah, that might be a disadvantage if you were actually fighting. Yeah. Hopefully, though, you're intimidating enough to just scare them away before you even get into combat, right? Right, yeah. So pretty cool looking dudes. Let's talk a bit about their weapons. And like I said, we did a whole episode about those swords, which was their most important weapon. Every samurai carried a daisho. The daisho was a pair of swords. You got one long and one short. 
and they could be used in different situations. But there's a lot of other stuff that samurai use too, right? Yeah. Samurai use bows. Kind yeah. of a ranged weapon. Yeah, known in Japanese as yumi. Mm-hmm. And the yumi that samurai were using was very long. The long bow. Seriously long. They were over two meters or six and a half feet long. And I mean, these guys, I doubt that very many of them were even six feet tall. So how does that work? You know, how do you hold a bow that's taller than you are? Well, the yumi were asymmetrical. The bottom part of it would be shorter than the top part so that you could hold it standing on the ground. That's really odd. Yeah, they look weird. And it seems like it wouldn't be good for shooting arrows accurately, but they were good at it, apparently. All right. Well, give me some other weapons. What else do they have? Pole arms were a big one. Yeah. A couple popular ones are called the yari, which was a spear type thing, and a naginata, which sort of looks like a spear, except instead of a pointed tip, it has more of a curved sword-like blade at the end. Looks yeah, pretty scary. I've seen a lot of those, I think. Yeah. Samurai also used guns. Yeah. Yeah. In 1543, there was a a matchlock gun introduced from the Portuguese that was called the Tanigashima. They recreated those very quickly. Those caught on very quickly. Yeah, I mean, by the end of the Sengoku period, you know, in the castles episode, we talked about how that changed the way that castles were built and stuff. Because, yeah, guns were everywhere by the end of that period. Yeah. Also cannons in the late 1500s. There were some small cannons around, not a ton of them, mm-hmm. but samurai would use those. And a bunch of other various weapons, staff weapons, clubs, chain weapons for your swinging weights or sharp things around on chains. That sounds pretty scary. Yeah, those ones look fun. (laughs) Fun, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so a lot of stuff that samurai could use, but that die show is kind of what's mainly associated with samurai because they would always have that on them. Yeah, for sure. So we talked about the outside of samurai. What's going on inside those samurai? What's in their heads? What's their philosophy of life like? The samurai had high moral values. Yeah, the major influences on samurai philosophy were Buddhism, especially Zen Buddhism, when that arrived around the 12th century, which was kind of the golden age of the samurai. And then, to a lesser extent, Shinto and Confucianism were influential as well. Mm Mm-hmm. So in Buddhism, meditation is big in Buddhism, and that would have been important for the samurai to calm their mind and allow them to focus in battle. And I thought it was fascinating that the Buddhist concepts of karma and reincarnation led samurai to abandon torture and needless killing. So they were like, they were still warriors, but they were honorable warriors, you know. But some of them even gave up violence altogether and became monks because the idea of karma is that it's like a cosmic scorecard kind of that follows you through your lives so if you're spending your lives killing all these people that's probably not going to be great for your karma yeah i even heard i i don't know if it's documented or true but some samurai came to that realization on the battlefield yeah and would quit fighting and they'd be killed by their opponents yeah but they'd have that realization this is pointless and they just put their sword down and Give up fighting. Yeah. On the battlefield might not be the best place to practice your newfound uh, pacifism. Might be the quickest way to level out your karma. (laughs) Perhaps. 
So eventually all these ideas developed into codes of honor and ideals, which are collectively known as Bushido, the way of the warrior. Although that term, Bushido, didn't really show up until the Edo period, after all this samurai stuff happened. Right. So you might think of all samurai as following the Bushido code, and that's not exactly true. Yeah, it wasn't really like written down. There was no handbook that all the samurai were referring to, like, how do I be the best samurai I can be? There were, though, shared ideals and moral values of the samurai class that Bushido ended up becoming based upon. Yeah, and you can see a lot of those in quotes from different samurai and daimyo, their rulers throughout history. Yeah, some of the things that were stressed always for samurai were things like frugality, martial arts mastery, honor until death. Yeah, I mean, we talk about yeah, loyalty. When we talk about codes of honor, like it's all about honor. You're supposed to have the utmost respect for your daimyo and shogun, the people that you're serving. And there are tons of writings from samurai throughout history that focused a lot on the importance of complete and total devotion and loyalty to your master. Like, that's your whole purpose as a samurai is to give your life to your master. Devotion. Yeah. There are also ideas about the treatment of enemies. Women and children were to be spared. Mm -hmm. And no animal cruelty. Heck yeah. Yeah, I can get behind that. And another big idea was that you, like to be an effective warrior, you had to get rid of your fear of death. So this idea was drilled into you that it's honorable to die for your master and to not risk your life in the line of duty would be shameful. It almost reminds me, I'm going to reveal a little bit of nerdiness here, but the Klingons from Star Trek, you know, they, they always talk about how honorable it is to die in battle. Yeah. That's uh, very similar to this samurai idea. It's a little, it's a little Bushido. Yeah. So I have a couple quotes here, actually, to illustrate this point. Oh, nice. So one of the most powerful lords of the Sengoku period, by the name of Kato Kiyomasa, he told his followers that a warrior's only duty in life was, and I quote, to grasp the long and short swords and to die. End quote. Okay. Like, that's doable. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. <laughs> and uh, Paul, you remember in the Christmas episode, we talked about St. Francis Xavier. He was the missionary that brought Christianity to Japan. Yeah. He wrote a lot about like what he observed in Japan. And he wrote that, quote, there is no nation in the world which fears death less, end quote. Interesting. Yeah. He also wrote that no other people in the world are more punctilious about honor. And I had to look up that word punctilious. Yeah, I was just going to say, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Yeah, I never heard that word before. Apparently it means showing great attention to detail or correct behavior. Oh. So the samurai were very focused on their honor and doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. And this idea of not fearing death is so ingrained in Japanese military thinking that I feel like you could still see remnants of that in World War II. With oh, the kamikaze sure. pilots, and I know in the Battle of Okinawa, there were soldiers that killed themselves rather than being captured. Many, many soldiers would not be captured. They yeah. would fight to the death or kill themselves first. Yeah. Pretty intense. Yeah. So this idea of Bushido, as we touched on earlier, that was romanticized a lot 
ever since this whole samurai age. But it's important to realize that samurai, they weren't all these perfect warriors with absolute loyalty. Like they could be disloyal or treacherous or cowardly. They were human beings too. Yeah, they strove towards the Bushido ideal collectively, but there were bad people among them. There were weak people among them and yeah. all, all sorts of different type of people because they're people. Yep. Humans are humans. Yep. You know, we talk about the importance of loyalty, but allegiances could shift depending on a lot of stuff. Like who do you decide to be loyal to? You know, what if your daimyo decides he's not supporting his shogun anymore? Do you stay loyal to your daimyo or the shogun or the emperor? You know, there there are different masters. You could kind of choose your master. So yeah, there were definitely samurai switching allegiances. Yeah, there are tough choices there. I read that in those situations, it seemed to be most common that you would stay with your direct superior because they're probably the one paying you. They're probably the one you live the closest to. Yeah. But that's been kind of true for armies throughout time. If you're a grunt, you go wherever your sergeant goes. If you're a sergeant, you go wherever your general goes. Yeah. But I guess someone at some point's got to flip their loyalties. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe you decide that your daimyo is betraying your country, you know, and maybe you just can't handle that. And you're like, well, I need to be loyal to my country, you know? He's not living up to the proper Bushido code. Yeah. Did you know there were eight virtues of Bushido? Who wrote down these eight? According Who to some eight? guy in the Edo period. Okay. <laughs> what are the eight? Righteousness. Heroic courage. I like that. Not just regular courage. Gotta be heroic. Benevolence slash compassion. So no cutting down commoners. Mm -hmm. Unless they really offend you. Right. Unless they show you dishonor. Respect. Honesty. Honor. Duty and loyalty. And lastly, self-control. All right. I like good most virtues. Of those. Yeah. yeah. They're all virtues. Virtues are good things to strive for. But yeah. I don't think most samurai probably made it on all of those. Not all of them, but you know, it did sound like most of them were striving for that and a lot of them, you know, got pretty close. Yeah, there were good goals to, yeah. to strive for. Yeah. So what if you're a samurai and you don't live up to these virtues? You get disgraced in some way. Yikes. It's a bad time. Yes. I don't think you can even come back from that. Like, you may as well just die at that point. Yeah, you can. You can die and save the honor of your family by killing yourself. Okay. Uh, ritual suicide called seppuku. Samurais were expected to perform this ritual under certain circumstances. Yeah, that's the only way to uh, preserve your family's honor is to slit your belly open. Like, say you were a warlord and you lost an important battle. Rather than be taken prisoner or be executed, you were expected to kill yourself. Mm -hmm. Or if you've been caught in betrayal of some sort, you might have to commit seppuku. Yeah. Makes me wonder how that idea developed. You know, who's the first person to be like, I just can't handle this dishonor? Gonna kill myself. I don't know. Yeah. Where did that start? I feel like it must have been forced upon somebody by a superior. Right. If you were that honorable, 
you probably wouldn't have done anything in the first place to get to the point where you had to commit seppuku. Yeah. Unless you lost a battle, maybe. I'm so ashamed that I failed my lord on the battlefield today that I'm just going to kill myself. Perhaps. We'll probably never know. Probably. Maybe we'll take the Wayback Machine someday and try to figure it out. We should do that. So let's talk samurai culture. Talk about philosophy, but what was it like being a samurai? Well, like we said, most samurai served a daimyo. They were paid in land and food. And their payment was measured in koku. Koku is the amount of rice that can feed one man for a year. Okay. And those samurai without a master, there's a special word for those, which I think I mentioned earlier, ronin. Yes. And you could become a ronin after your master's death, perhaps, or maybe you fell out of favor of your master. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want you around anymore. Also, in certain turbulent times in Japanese history, there were many samurai let go at the same time. I think we mentioned earlier, uh, once power was consolidated after the Warring States period, uh, if you weren't loyal to us during this time, you're all, you're all not samurai anymore. And yeah. boom, they all become ronin. Yeah. Um, or later on during the Tokugawa shogunate, they kept reducing the size of the military. So they would tell daimyos, you, you have to get rid of this many samurai. Mm. So they would just cut some of them loose from time to time. I would not want to be one of those guys because upon the loss of your master, a samurai is supposed to commit seppuku. That's one of those situations where you're, your most honorable choice is to kill yourself. Oh, really? Just because your master's like, yeah, I'm not into it anymore. You're like, oh, yeah. oh, that's the end of my life. Yeah. So to be a ronin was really shameful. Like not only did it mean that you lost your master for, for whatever reason, but that you refused to take the honorable route and kill yourself. Wow. Yeah. So these ronin, a lot of them became mercenaries or criminals. Like they're just running around causing trouble. Yeah. They'd become armed bandits or whatever. What else would they do? Yeah. But the samurai that managed to hold on to their samurai status were very highly educated. They would be trained in military tactics and strategy, and you can still see some of those teachings in modern martial arts, apparently. Uh, samurai were highly literate. Some of them even had personal libraries with thousands of texts in them. That's impressive. Yeah. They'd have books about strategy, the science of warfare, sacred texts, family histories, well-read guys. Yeah. And samurai idealized the arts and aspired to become skilled in them. The popular ones were the tea ceremony, we touched on in our last episode. Yeah. Ink painting, rock gardens, like Zen gardens, Zen Buddhism was big yep. in samurai culture, and poetry. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about samurai names because I, I thought it was pretty interesting how they get their names. Okay. So a samurai name is usually created by combining one kanji. If you don't know what kanji is, listen to our Japanese language episode. You combine one kanji from the father or grandfather with a new kanji. But then you would also include a couple more things. Maybe you'd have your title and maybe you have a formal nickname that people can call you by. So, for example, Oda Nobunaga, one of those guys that was involved in uniting Japan, he was known, or he is known now as Oda Nobunaga, but his full name would have been Oda Kazusanosuke Saburo Nobunaga. 
a long name. So you got his family name, his title, his formal nickname, and then a private adult name. And this name would be given to a person at their coming of age ceremony known as a genpuku. And this private name is really special. Only very few people can use that name. Like the emperor would be able to call you by that name, but maybe nobody else. Right. So my understanding is almost everyone at the time would just call him Oda. He had this long name, but like that was the name that like most people were able to use. Okay. So just his family name. Yeah. Because they weren't only the emperor and his close family or friends could use Nobunaga. Yeah. Yeah. And that private name is chosen by the samurai. Like he names himself and you could change that. Like it could be changed really frequently depending on if the person changed their allegiances. Yeah. If you change your allegiance, change your name. It mm-hmm. makes history a little bit confusing in that period. Yeah. What about samurai marriage? What if you're a samurai and you want to get married? How's that going to work? You're going to get an arranged marriage, usually arranged by someone of the same or higher social standing than you. Yeah. And most samurai married women from another samurai family, but lower-ranked samurai were allowed to marry commoners. Mm-hmm. And if they did marry a commoner, the commoner's family would pay a dowry to the samurai. Yeah, so I think it often ended up happening like they would marry a daughter of a merchant family. And the merchant family would pay off the samurai's debts or whatever Mm -hmm. and gain prestige by being now member of a samurai family. So it was kind of a symbiotic thing. Yeah, yeah. And samurai could also take concubines. Yeah, I saw that too. I didn't know that. Yeah, so concubines... I mean, it's a lot like another wife, except they're not technically or legally a wife. Yeah, like if they're lower class and they don't have a lot of money to give you, then maybe they just become the concubine. I I wasn't quite sure exactly when that always happened. Well, normally it would be worse to be a concubine than a wife. Right. But a concubine's son could still go on to inherit from his father and he would be of the samurai class, even though she never officially married into the family. Mm. And a lot of people thought it was better to be a samurai's concubine than the wife of a commoner. Like, it still elevated the family status, even if you weren't technically married to them. Right, right. But if you did, if you were a samurai and you wanted a concubine, a higher-ranked samurai would do a background check on that concubine to like make sure she wasn't going to bring shame upon your family, yeah, I yeah. suppose. It had to be approved. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Speaking of women, what was going on with the women in the samurai class? Like, What was happening with these wives? What were they up to? Well, the men were off fighting wars. Uh, the women did everything else. Yeah, their duty was to maintain the household, care for the children. Maybe handle the finances. Yeah. And they may have even been trained to use weapons in case they had to protect their household, their family, and or their honor. Yeah, they were often trained in a polearm called a naginata or a knife. They even had a special art called tantujutsu, the skill of the knife. Nice. And there were even women that fought alongside male samurai, but most of them were not formal samurai. And even though these women were high class, like they were still part of the samurai class and they enjoyed a lot of the perks of being high class, they were still viewed as far beneath the men. Yeah. 
They were prohibited from engaging in political activity and were rarely the heads of their households. But you can actually find examples throughout history of women taking on powerful positions. Absolutely. And there's stories too of like a powerful samurai where the stories like, well, really like his wife would <laughs> shoot him down sometimes and tell him what really to do, you know? Yeah. Even though officially he had the power. We all know that's how it turns out sometimes. Yeah. I feel I heard of some story where like a powerful guy died and his wife kind of took his role in the government. It, it happened. Definitely it happened common. before. Yeah. But in the Edo period, when more value was placed on education, that also extended to women. So by the end of the Edo period, almost all women in the samurai class were literate. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I did see that some valued traits in women of the samurai class were humility, obedience, self-control, strength, and loyalty. All right. Quite a few of those are similar to the... Uh, Males' goals in Bushido as well. There's a lot of overlap there. Totally. You might also be surprised to learn that there were some foreign samurai. There's a well-known Korean samurai, and there were even a couple guys that came from the West, an English and Dutch guy that became samurai. They both arrived uh, in Japan on the same ship, actually. Yeah. It was apparently a terrible voyage, and almost everybody died. But a couple people made it and became samurai. (laughs) There's rumors of others too. There's like rumors of an African samurai and an Italian samurai, Mm. but there's not like verified paper accounts of it. No written accounts that uh, verify exactly what happened apparently. Mm. Uh, There were uh, at least a handful of Korean samurai too. There was the one really famous, but there were a few others for sure. I believe it. The invasions of Korea, you know, they picked up some locals that helped them out that came back to Japan with them. And if you serve well enough, you got promoted. Yeah. Yeah, there was some other quote from some daimyo or something that said that uh, samurai were to be treated based on their abilities and their loyalty, not necessarily only on their uh, family name or whatever. That sounds like a good idea. Mm -hmm. All right, so if you are going to Japan... And you want to see some super cool samurai stuff. There are a lot of places that you can go. You could visit castles where samurai lived and defended. You can find museums. A lot of those castles are museums. Like inside them, you can find swords and armor and a lot of good information about samurai history. Yeah, I believe Osaka Castle is a museum. Yeah, yeah. A lot of stuff about Tokugawa Ieyasu, especially, I remember there. Yeah, Uh, There are a lot of surviving samurai districts around Japan where you can actually go and see places that samurai used to live, see what their lifestyle was like. I went to the Nagamachi Samurai District in Kanazawa, and you can see upper-class samurai places, but you can also see places where the Ashigaru lived, those lower-class foot soldier samurai guys. That'd be cool. Yeah. There's also theme parks that you can go to. There's one called Nico Edumura in Nico. Yeah, that's, that's the Edo Wonderland that I wanted to visit yeah. on my last trip. It's supposed to be like this Edo time period and you can dress up and it's supposed to just be super cool. Yeah, it does look really cool. But I also saw there's one in Kyoto that's a theme park, but it's also a film set. 
So they film a ton of like the dramas and stuff that are set in the old times there. Cool. So you can like, during the day, you could like walk through the sets and it's a theme park. And then at sometimes they close it off and film too. That's awesome. So then that's in Brighton, Kyoto. So that looked really cool too. Yeah, yeah. If you're venturing up to Hokkaido, there's one up there called uh, Noboribetsu Date Jidai Mura in Noboribetsu. There's another theme park. I don't have a lot of details about it, but... Yeah. Yeah, there seemed to be a bunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, as for museums, you can see a lot of that kind of stuff even around Tokyo. There's a sword museum in Tokyo. You know, there's a samurai museum in Shinjuku. Uh, in Nagoya, there's the Tokugawa Art Museum that has a bunch of armor and swords, tea utensils and art. And in Kanazawa, I didn't go to these, but the Maeda and Honda museums have relics from the two most prominent samurai families in the area. Nice. Yeah. At a lot of these different types of places we've listed, you can dress up as samurai. You might be able to handle some of their weapons, learn about some of their fighting techniques. I know at that uh, Edo Wonderland in Nikko, they do like demonstrations where they'll show you how to fight like a samurai or a ninja, stuff like that. That's cool. Yeah. That's all I got. Yeah, I think that's it for samurai today. I think so too. If you want to see some samurai armor, check out our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. And if you want to reach out to us, you can send an email to feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. What are we talking about next time, Paul? On the next episode, we're going to be talking about origami, Japanese paper folding. Nice. Yeah, it's really cool. I'm looking forward to doing some research into that. Yeah, me too. I've done quite a bit of origami. You know, I actually got really into it in elementary school when they taught us how to fold a paper crane. I kind of got really into it and learned how to make a bunch of stuff. And I would do that instead of listening because school bored me. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some people make some really cool stuff. Yeah, it's amazing what you can do with a simple square sheet of paper. Well, we'll find out on the next episode. Yeah, look forward to that. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.